this uh, passage, uh, Paul, uh, some of his arguments are very obscure, relying on uh, discussions and teachings that uh, we haven't heard, that we weren't party to. Things that, that they would understand exactly, immediately, what he's talking about, but we can only guess. There are a lot of passages in Scripture that are this way, that, that we don't quite have all the information, and we're doing our best to pick our way through and make, make uh, educated guesses. And usually it's pretty fun to try to figure it out. My uh, nephew in California has a game on his computer called Minefield, and, uh, or Minesweep is what it's called. And I play that usually for a couple hours every time I'm down there. And on this, you work your way through this grid, logically figuring out the uh, positions of the surrounding mines. Occasionally, you get to a spot where there's just not enough information, and you've got a flat-out guess. So one small error in logic, one unlucky guess, and the whole screen blows up. And when that happens, I usually scream and slap myself in the forehead and start the game over. You know, no big deal. And no one's hurt. It's just a game. But the passage we're going to be looking at this morning touches something so deep in us and has been so often misused and misinterpreted, has caused so much hurt and confusion, even division within the body and within churches, that it's no game. People can be seriously confused and hurt. So as I've prepared over the last couple of weeks for this sermon, I've fluctuated between intense terror at uh, trying to pick my way through this minefield and, and excitement about making a bold, fearless attempt. My only fear is that I will hit so many mines along the way that I won't have anybody with me by the time we get to the end. So as we begin our way through this passage, please stay with me. Don't take off in some direction I start on or off on something I say and run with it. You'll hit a mine, I'm sure. Stick with me. And if uh, I set off a few mines in your mind or your heart, your emotions, accept my apology in advance. Don't give up. We'll work our way through it together. The reason this passage is so dangerous is because it speaks of men and women, and relative roles. It encourages submission. It encourages culturally appropriate expressions of masculinity and femininity based on timeless biblical principles. This should be wonderful. I mean, we need this stuff. Our culture is so confused about these things that any help we get should be welcomed. But unfortunately, we find that we tend to read passages like this through our own fears, insecurities, and often come out more upset and more confused than when we started. Well, we Christians tend to fall into two camps. One camp sees the confusing and distorting tendency in our society to obscure the differences between the sexes. There's a powerful movement toward androgyny, that is erasing the differences between men and women. And so often accompanying this movement is an attitude of rebellion and anger, even hatred toward God and the Scriptures. Those that have see this concern realize uh, rightly that the image of God is being distorted. 
God created us in His image, male and female. And these attitudes that go along with it are so often destroying relationships, uh, fostering selfishness and rebellion, destroying families, leaving people confused, wounded, isolated, empty. And so the people with concern about this are very sensitive to anything in the church or in the interpretation of Scripture that might suggest that these attitudes are insinuating their way into the church of the living God. However, on the other side are those who have seen how traditional interpretations of Scripture have genuinely been used to oppress women, to to empower men to act selfishly and in a high-handed way toward women. So often, women, the, the, the gifts and abilities that God has given women are neglected or depreciated in order to not inflame some sense of insecurity in men, leaving the church and the kingdom impoverished by the suppression and the neglect of these resources that God has given for His glory and for our benefit. Also, they've seen how women have been led to believe that they are somehow inferior or defective. They could never be on a par with a man spiritually. And the traditional interpretations of what masculinity and femininity um, are have been used to inhibit men and women from being the man or woman that God has uniquely created them to be. We're pressed into some Christian mold of what a man or a woman should be. And see, all of these attitudes are, are so destructive to the people that have adopted them. They, they're so damaging to the possibility of, of integrity in relationships between men and women. They, they so obscure the true picture of God that is designed for the relationship of men and women loving and respecting each other, that the people with these concerns are very sensitive to anything in the church or in the interpretation of Scripture that would reflect how these attitudes have become established and entrenched in the church of the living God. See, unfortunately, <coughs> excuse me, these attitudes or these concerns, rather, are so emotionally held that it brings division and discord within the body. We begin to look at each other as having been so deceived and and, um, so compromised that we view each other as a danger to the body. Everyone and everything said becomes viewed with suspicion. As a result, we begin to treat each other with distrust and we can't hear what the other is saying. See, I will know that I've been successful here this morning if I end up offending and frightening everyone to some extent. Because both concerns are legitimate and important. Both concerns see a true danger of distorting God's design and God's plan for us. So let me encourage you not to allow yourself to be polarized to one side or the other, but to embrace and appreciate both concerns. Take them seriously as we work our way through passages like this one to see the treasures, the freedom that God has hidden here in these passages.
Well, I've talked for about 10 minutes, and I have successfully avoided getting into the passage. But I guess uh, I can't do that much longer, so let's go ahead and and jump in. I'll read through it, and uh, then we'll talk. Verse 2 of chapter 11. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason and because of the angels, that woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as women came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I see mines going off all over the room. Explosions everywhere. But again, let's work our way through it. Well, Paul starts out by commending them. He lets them know that he appreciates how they have responded to the things that he has taught them. Well, right off, here we are wondering what he's talking about. What things did he teach them? We're listening to half of a conversation. We don't know what the other half is. What things is he talking about that he taught them? And how does that fit into what he's talking about? Let me give you my guess. From the context, I think Paul is referring to the fact that these uh, Christians in Corinth have included women as full participants in their worship together. You see... Under the Jewish tradition, the women were always kept separate from the men during worship. They were kept behind a lattice screen that they could listen through, they could even peek through, but they were kept out of sight. It was totally unthinkable for a woman to participate actively in the worship service, to offer a prayer, or to bring a word from God, or to encourage people from the Scripture. It just wouldn't be done. In fact, most men of that time thought women were inferior, that they had somehow become uh, defective, that they, that, that they could not be trusted, they were unreliable, so they could not conceive of learning something from a woman. They wouldn't even discuss with them. But one of the truths demonstrated by our Lord Jesus in His life here on the earth was that this view is absolutely wrong. Jesus treated women as his intellectual equals, his intellectual peers. He engaged them in conversation. He took serious their thoughts, their questions, their feelings. He he allowed them, in fact, he, he attracted them as his disciples, something a rabbi of the day never would have done. Jesus not only encouraged it, he cultivated it. 
and Jesus' conversations over and over with women, and his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, his conversation with the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, or with Mary and Martha, we not only see Jesus engaging these women in conversation, we see him communicating to them some profound truths about who he is and what he had come to do, truths that he never even told his apostles for many years to come. See, Jesus not only accepted ministry from women in traditional ways, in cooking and hospitality, but he accepted ministry from them in the ways typically reserved for men, in conversation and intellectual exploration. Jesus not only did not look down on women, he was not only not intimidated by their strength, Jesus valued women as his friends. The early church was affected by this as they came together to worship the apostles who had seen Jesus' relationship with women, rejected the Jewish conventions. They refused to partition the women off into separate and unequal areas of the church. They saw that women were fully co-heirs of the gospel, that the women had the exact same relationship with God through Jesus Christ that they had. And so they invited the women to participate in the worship praying and prophesying. I think this is what Paul is acknowledging, that they have embraced this teaching. And it's good. He sees them treating women as co-heirs, as equals, and it delights him. They were treating women with respect and integrity as equals before God. But as so often happens, the enemy will take something that's very important, very good and valuable, and he'll twist it just a little bit to distort it, to lead us off track. I think C.S. Lewis was the first I saw use the analogy of a pendulum to describe this. You see, when Satan can't keep us from embracing some truth he's been hiding from us, he can't keep us from understanding it any longer, it's become too obvious, he'll run around the other side and push it the other way into something unhealthy on the other side to confuse us and to distort it again. And in this situation... These people had fully embraced the freedom they have as equals before God. But then they started reasoning, well, if we are equal before God, then there must be no differences between men and women. We must be exactly the same. And there must be no biblically appropriate differences in the roles God has given men and women in marriage or in the church. And any convention or cultural practice that suggests a distinction between men and women or a difference in the roles that God has for them must be rejected as as offensive and harmful. Paul says, no, wait a minute. You're missing something very important here. You're confusing people here. So he says, verse 3, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a woman is the man, and the head of Christ is is God. There go those explosions again. Now, doesn't this seem to contradict everything I just said? Doesn't this seem like Paul is saying, well, men are the boss. By doing that, doesn't he seem to just be giving license for the kind of abuse that we often see in traditional marriages, abuse that many of you women have suffered from and many of you men have been confused by and suffered from? But again, let's walk carefully. Let's make our way carefully. The first question we have to ask 
is what does Paul mean by head? See, unfortunately, we have become just like the world in our understanding of words like this. You know, we, we hear the word head and immediately we think of, of privilege and control and prerogative and, and, and being served and catered to and things like that. I'm sure Jesus shakes his head in dismay because he tried so carefully and clearly to differentiate what he means by terms like that from what the world means. Matthew 20, Jesus is explaining to his apostles. He says, you know that leadership among the Gentiles means authority and privilege, the ability to pressure people to do what you want them to and meet your needs. But, he says, that is not the way it is supposed to be for you. That isn't what leadership is. In the kingdom, leadership is license to serve, to be a slave, to put others' well-being and needs and interests above your own. And then he draws attention to himself as the illustration of this. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, leadership is a license to serve, a license to give up your own rights and privileges in order to meet the needs of those you serve. I'm an elder in this church. I'm a leader here. For some people, that's intimidating. And that's sad. Because all that means is that I have accepted an invitation to give up my time and my interests in order to serve the people of this congregation. I have the opportunity to love you by telling you the truth, by teaching you how to build each other up, by hurting with your hurts. See, that's all it means. It doesn't mean I'm any smarter or stronger or better or superior in any way to anyone else. It doesn't mean I get to tell anybody what to do. It doesn't mean that I'm any closer to God, though I do have to cling to God desperately sometimes to know how to love people. It doesn't even mean that I get my own parking place out front. About a year ago, I was um, doing a hospital visit over at St. Luke's. And at the time, they had no clergy parking. And so I'm walking up there, and my daughter was with me, and I'm grumbling about the fact that they have no clergy parking. And I looked at her, and I said, do you know what a clergy is? She thought about it for a second. She said, is that kind of like a hypocrite? (laughs) I said, uh... Well, I guess it is sometimes. (laughs) Whenever someone in any position of leadership, whatever, within the body of Christ, thinks that uh, entitles them to privilege, that is hypocrisy. Because that isn't what the word means among us. So when Paul uses the term head, Forget all the connotations about privilege and control and prerogative. That misses the whole point. Well, what is the point? Let me tell you. God has designed in marriage a relationship that will clearly communicate something profound about who He is. Marriage was to be the audio-visual demonstration of the very character of God. In marriage, 
you have a man and a woman. And men and women are different. That was the way he planned it from the beginning, from creation. He made us male and female in his image. See, and that was to reflect the very nature of God. He is three persons, yet there is only one God. In the Godhead, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but He is only one God. He is diversity with unity. And even as I explain that, that makes no logical sense. Human language is inadequate to explain the Trinity, to explain God, to explain these concepts. So even though God uses human language to describe these things, ultimately he communicates them by the very nature of humanity and specifically by a man and a woman. Men and women are different and that's more than just anatomical difference. But that difference, again, accentuates the beauty of the unity as two very different people choose to submit themselves to each other in love and to be united into one flesh. The two become one. There is unity there. That unity is based on mutual love and respect and commitment to each other. And that is supposed to help us understand the very character and nature of God. Well, Paul's concern for what was happening in Corinth was that this audiovisual uh, device, this beautiful picture of who God is, was being distorted and destroyed as, as people begin to obscure the differences between men and women and reject God's loving design for their marriages and, and for their relationships. And so that's why Paul starts with a discussion of headship there in verse 3. And he starts by saying, Christ is the head of every man. Now we already know what that means. Christ came to serve us and to give his life for us. That's what headship is. Then he says, and the head of a woman is the man or her man. Now that doesn't mean that men are the, every man is the head of every woman. But within marriage, the head of a woman, a wife, is her husband, her man. Now don't digress on me. Remember what headship is. It's described in Ephesians 5. Let me read this real quick. Paul's description of headship. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You see, this is an invitation for husbands to lay aside their agendas and their priorities and their needs to radically serve and love their wives and to see their wives develop 
and to women, to Christians. Conversely, the wives are invited to submit to their husbands, to be for them, which is what submission means, to be to place themselves under them as their support and encouragement. To, to love them enough to be honest about who they are and their feelings and their needs and the nature of their relationship. To encourage their husbands to become the men and the Christians that God has in mind for them. Now listen to this carefully. This respect and submission by a woman to a man is not an admission of inferiority. To believe that is heresy. Because to believe that a woman submits to a man because she's inferior to him is as bad anthropology as it is bad theology to believe that Jesus submits to the Father because he's somehow less than God. That's what the cults believe. Jesus is in no way less than the Father. He is entirely God himself. And as a full equal with the Father, he chooses with delight, gladly, to submit himself to the Father. That's what Paul said there in verse 3. The head of Christ is God. Jesus said it over and over in his ministry. In John 8, he said, I always do what pleases the Father. In John 4, he said, my food, the thing that strengthens me, that encourages me, that sustains me, that keeps me going, is to do or is to please my Father. You see, it was his delight. And Jesus chose gladly to submit to the Father. And the Father unswervingly supported and encouraged and affirmed the Son in His life and relationships and ministry. Notice also that there is no suggestion, no reference to, not even a hint of power here. The Father didn't demand or pressure require the Son to submit to Him? The Son didn't pressure, manipulate, demand the Father to serve Him and to love Him? No, it was their delight to love each other like this. Their most intense pleasure was their unity and their commitment to each other. And in the same way, a husband can't demand or pressure his wife to respond to him in any certain way. And a wife can't demand or manipulate her husband into loving and serving her. That destroys the whole design. Instead, marriage is an invitation to experience something intense and beautiful. To give up our own rights and privileges in order to reflect the image of God and to experience that unity and that commitment and to communicate to those around us something profound about the very nature of our God. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching the sequel to Sarah Plain and Tall called Skylark. And the plot of this story is Sarah, who was a very strong a very independent woman from the coast of Maine who absolutely loves the sea, becomes a mail-order bride for a Midwestern farmer whose wife has died, he has two small children, and he loves the land above all things. 
So they're married, but there's still a powerful tension between them because she loves the sea and he loves the land. As the story goes on, Sarah chooses out of her strength to give up ever seeing the sea again, to stay with her husband on the farm. She says she does this out of her terrible love for this man. And the tension in the movie is whether or not this man is capable of that same kind of terrible, compelling love. And in the end, he does the unthinkable. He leaves his land to come to her at the sea. It was a powerful movie. I wept. It it, it touches something deep inside of us to see people loving like this, to see a strong woman and a strong man out of their strength Loving like this. Choosing to give up what they treasure most for the other. Dying to themselves that their union might live. It touches something deep inside us. It opens our understanding to the God who is love. Strong woman, maybe a physician or a judge or CEO or a woman who chooses to stay home with her children, a strong woman submitting to a man who places her needs and her development above his ambition, above his work, above his leisure, sends a powerful message to any who see of the freedom that we have in Christ to love, to give up our rights and privileges in order to reflect the image of God, to experience the intense rightness of His character. There's no more powerful testimony and there's no greater privilege. Well, let's uh, keep walking our way through 1 Corinthians 11. I think it will be easier now. Starting in verse 4. Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman but woman from man. Neither was man made, created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. What's going on here is a little bit hard for us to grasp because what is happening is there's a discussion that revolves around cultural symbols, cultural communication, symbols that we don't have in our culture. But the real issue here is that these people were miscommunicating to each other and to those outside what the true nature of their relationships was. There were two issues here. First of all, in that culture, a male Jew would always pray and prophesy with his head covered, either with a prayer shawl or the yarmulke, the little beanie thing that covers the bald spot. These were signs of their submission to the law of Moses. Yet for a Christian, they were no longer under the law. Faith in Jesus Christ had set them free from the law, free to have an intimate relationship with God, a personal relationship with God based on the death. To be willing to give up 
the right that we have in Christ to do as we please. And so in that culture, for a man to cover his head would have confused people. It would have said he was still under the law. It would have dishonored his head, who is Christ. Verse 7, Paul says that man is in the image and glory of God. And so the way a man conducts himself should accurately communicate about who God is and the intimate relationship that he has with God. To cover his head obscures that. However, for a woman to have her head uncovered was an entirely different cultural message. See, it isn't that a woman is not in the image and glory of God. It's that in that culture, for a woman to have her head uncovered meant that she was a prostitute or that she was sexually available. In many of the Middle Eastern cultures, this is still true. Proper women wear a yashmak, the veil. And if they don't, they're sending a clear message. In fact, I have a friend who was a missionary in that part of the world. And uh, he told me of problems he had with the single women on his team who didn't wear the veil. Not only the men, but the women, everybody in that society looked at them as immoral and loose, sexually available. And the problem got so difficult that the single women on his team had to come back to the States. See, the, the issue in Corinth, these women were free to wear their hair as long or as short as they wanted to wear the veil or not to wear the veil. But when they wore their hair short and when they took the veil off, it miscommunicated to the people around them the true nature of their relationship with their husband. It said that they were sexually available to other men and this disgraced their husbands. And it lied about the true nature of their commitment, their love for their husbands. And so they were miscommunicating. And they were distorting that picture of God in which a man and a woman give themselves entirely to each other. And so Paul, again, encourages women to give up their freedom to wear their hair at any length and to, to, to go without the covering. To give up that freedom in order not to confuse those who would misinterpret their hearts. I think verse 7 summarizes this basically saying, that a man should not cover his head because that miscommunicates about his relationship with God. A woman should, should cover her head because otherwise she miscommunicates about her relationship with her husband, with her man. And then verses 7 and 8 go on to argue and to demonstrate that the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage was designed this way from the beginning. See, God created Humanity created us in a specific way. He used a specific procedure, not because he was groping for a way to make it right, but because he wanted to communicate something to us. He created a man. And then he said, it is not good for a man to be alone. That man cannot experience loving someone who is like himself yet different. He cannot experience diversity with unity. You can't experience loving someone like God loves us. And so God took from man a woman, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And then man could love someone like that and experience unity with diversity. He could love someone like God loves us and who would respond to him like we respond to God. And finally, in that same paragraph is verse 10. The stuff about angels. 
Those of you that were looking at this in growth group are probably looking forward to how I'm going to explain this. Uh, unfortunately, I have no idea what Paul is talking about. <laughs> you know, I've heard some pretty fanciful explanations. Uh, but I do know that the way we were created and the way we conduct ourselves has an effect on the spiritual world. And our behavior, our attitudes, is intended to demonstrate something to the spiritual world. But other than that, I don't know what he's talking about. Well, Paul ends this whole discussion with an argument that is very obscure to me. He uh, appeals to nature to, uh, to, to give corroborating evidence to all that he's been saying. He says that nature, and by that he doesn't mean the animal kingdom... He doesn't mean what feels natural to you. He's referring to the very way men and women are in the way they were created. Something about that confirms that uh, it's a disgrace for men to have their head covering or have long hair, for women to have their head uncovered or to have short hair. Again, I don't know what he's talking about. We do know anthropologically that most of the cultures around Paul, the men had shorter hair, the women had longer hair. Other than maybe the Scythians and, and the Goths, both, in both of those cultures, men had very long hair, but so did the women. So I'm not sure what he's talking about there. Some argue that in the Roman world, homosexuals had very long hair, and that's what Paul is talking about. But let me give you my guess, as weird as it might be. Uh, it's not original with me. Very few of my ideas are original with me. This one I got from Ray Stedman. Last weekend, I was at a men's conference up in Spokane. As I looked around and counted, over a third of the men there were either bald, had a bald spot, or had a receding hairline. See, men, as they mature, tend to get thin on top. Women don't tend toward that near as much. So mature manhood tends to be less hair. Mature womanhood tends to be more hair. Okay? I think that's what Paul is referring to, that, that, that the way we, God created us just confirms or suggests this. Now, I don't mean to imply by that that those of you men who have a longer hairstyle are somehow less masculine or less godly. And, or those of you women who choose a style that is shorter are less feminine or less godly. The symbols don't mean that in our culture. We don't interpret hair that way anymore. Short hair on a woman can be very feminine. Longer hair on a man can be very masculine. However, if a woman has short hair as an expression of her dissatisfaction with being a woman. Or if a man grows his hair long because he is dissatisfied with being a man, then something is very wrong. God created us, men and women, and that is wonderful. That is something to be enjoyed and celebrated. If you are a man, that is great. Enjoy it. If you are a woman, celebrate it. Enjoy it. Paul ends with a statement, If anyone wants to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. He's saying, don't get all upset about this and uptight about this. Don't get into arguments about this. Don't let it become such a big deal. 
But it is a big deal. It touches us profoundly. We do get upset. Well, let me end with a couple of appeals. First of all, we are all in this together, trying to figure it out. Let's engage each other in honest conversation with respect and trust rather than suspicion and distrust. And secondly, let me call on everyone here to be the person that God has designed and called you to be. If you're born a man, be the man that you have the freedom in Christ to be. I can't tell you what that's going to look like when it comes to throwing a baseball, cooking, fixing a car, balancing a checkbook. But I do know that if you will turn to Jesus Christ as your model of what godliness is and depend on Him for the wisdom and the strength, He will make you the man you can be. And I do know that if you are married, that part of that will be loving your wife radically and giving yourself to her and for her, serving her. If you're born a woman, be all of the woman that you have the freedom in Jesus Christ to be. Again, I don't know what that's going to look like when it comes to throwing a baseball or cooking or fixing a car or balancing a checkbook. But I do know that if you will look to Jesus Christ for the model of what godliness is and depend on Him for the wisdom and the strength, He will make you all the woman He intended you to be. And I do know that if you are married, a part of that will be giving yourself unreservedly to your husband to be supporting him, encouraging him, responding to his love. And as each couple here does this, walking with God, working through the profound and painful impediments to loving each other like this, uh, the insecurities that keep us from loving each other like this. You will find God's grace and healing. And ultimately, you will come to understand and to, to demonstrate in your life the very character of God in ways more wonderful than you can imagine. Let's pray. Lord, we are so nervous about these things. We've seen so much pain. We've seen uh, so much hurt being inflicted in your name. We've seen such uh, confusion in our lives and lives of people around you. So these things do touch us deeply. But I praise you for your word that can give us the balance of learning how to be free in you, to celebrate who we are, to delight in experiencing what you experienced, your very nature, the way we love each other. And Lord, as we do that, we ultimately want to see you. We want to know you as you really are. Thank you for such a wonderful device, giving us each other, giving us men and women, by which you demonstrate your very character. Lord, uh, we thank you, and we want to celebrate and enjoy that. In your name, amen.